And will you pray with me as we come to God's word this morning? Almighty God, Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis in chapter 33. We've been studying the book of Genesis in our morning services. We come to chapter 33, chapter 33, and verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered to find favour in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please. If I have found favour in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. And then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favour in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. So Genesis 33 concludes these stories that we've been looking at over the past months of conflict between Esau and Jacob. We saw Jacob propelled to a foreign land and Jacob in the midst of conflict in the foreign land, he returns blessed with wives, children, and great prosperity. 
Jacob is on the verge of returning to the promised land. Indeed, he's entered in, but he has yet to encounter Esau, his long-lost brother. And that has been much on his mind, as we saw a couple of weeks, in the last couple of weeks. And we've seen throughout these studies in Genesis that there's almost always many things going on in the same passage. Every time you read, you've probably read or can see commentaries and sermons coming at it from many different angles. And there are several layers of meaning in most of these chapters, and chapter 33 is no different. And if we look on chapter, if we look at Genesis 33 only on a horizontal level, it is a wonderful, wonderful story with wonderful application about human and, and family reconciliation. It's all about a nervous family reunion. There's a lot of anxiety going on here. It's about brothers who might have come to war with one another, but did not. That's one way to approach the passage, and it absolutely is not the wrong way. But if, is that, if that is all we did, and if that is all we applied, our understanding of Genesis 33 would be incomplete. So we must look at this at the horizontal level, but we must also look at this on a vertical level. This, yes, the story is about Jacob and his Esau. They are the prominent principal characters in Genesis 33. But more than that, this is a larger series of stories about God and Jacob. About Jacob's journey away from the promised land and now back to the promised land. And about God's commitment every step of the way to his promises. And that Jacob must trust God and his promises. So we do need to look at the story, and we will on the horizontal level, Jacob and Esau, but we must also look at the vertical dimension, Jacob and his God. We will spend some time on the first part, the horizontal level, dealing with these estranged brothers, and at the end we'll look vertically at what God is doing across 20 years of Jacob's life. So when we look at the horizontal dimension, this is the big theme, reunion. You see it in three different scenes. Scene one, the sighting. Scene two, the celebration. And then kind of strangely, scene three, the separation. The second word starts with a C, but it sounds like an S, so it kind of works, doesn't it? Kind of. Sighting, celebration, and separation. I don't always do that, by the way, but I thought that was interesting. So scene one, the sighting. Jacob lifted up his eyes after wrestling with God in chapter 32, where Jacob saw the face of God and lived. God touched Jacob's hip socket and he emerged with a limp as a changed man. Jacob is now Israel and he lifts up his eyes and Esau is coming. And not just Esau, but we're reminded in verse 1, within 400 men, which is the normal number throughout the Old Testament for a military regiment. So on the face of it, Esau is coming, and Jacob has every reason to doubt his intentions. He's got an army with him. He's got a military regiment. So Jacob is really nervous about this family reunion. 
I'm sure all of you have perfect families, so you haven't got any memories of nervous family reunions, you know, those just don't bring up grandpa and I really hope Uncle Bob's not going to be there or don't say anything about the house they're living in because it's not really theirs, it's ours. And we mustn't talk about politics on the t at the dinner table and don't, and maybe don't say, why did they end up in that church? You know what I mean? Don't talk about it. But, but you get a bit nervous about the family reunion and you have to talk to these people. After all, they're your family. And you have to make small talk and you just have to get through the day with the cucumber sandwiches and the rubber chicken. But this is worse. This is exponentially worse. This is a family reunion that Jacob has been dreading for for 20 years. He's been dreading this family reunion for 20 years. Esau, his brother, from whom Jacob cheated the birthright and the blessing. And it's 20 years later. The last time Jacob knew, Esau wanted him dead. Again, so Esau wanted him dead. That's the last Jacob knew of Esau. That's why he left. That's why he left in the first place. So Esau comes with 400 military guys with him. So Jacob divides the family into three. Did you see that? That's quite interesting. The favoured ones at the back. And that prompted a saying, by the way, of the rabbis, the more beloved, the more behind. And that's, that's where they come from. The more beloved, the more behind. I, I, I shudder to think, but anyway. He put, he put them behind, why? He'd already sent across some of his gifts to placate Esau. But he knows as Esau meet, meets the companions, he's going to meet Zilpah and Bilhah, the female servants and their children, his children, and then Leah and her children. Remember how they named their children to spite the other sister, really happy families. And then at the back, Rachel and Joseph. And you could already see before the coat of many colours, there's a little bit of favouritism going on now, isn't there? A little bit of favouritism, a little bit of sibling rivalry. Thanks, Dad. You want Joseph to live, even if all of us have to die. Thanks, Dad. You're a really good dad. And if this thing goes bad really quickly and Esau starts killing everybody, at least the favourites get a chance to hightail it out the back. So everyone understands what's happening. Now Jacob, let's, okay, let's give Jacob some credit here. He's out front. He's out front. Verse 3, he went, himself went out before them. So Jacob's put himself up front. And he bowed seven times on his way to meet Esau. And one of the things that is difficult about this chapter is at the beginning, it's hard to tell, is Jacob genuinely humble and contrite? Or is this just more Jacob, you know, more before Israel, more Jacob, shrewd, conniving, cunning, trickster? And the commentaries go off in all kinds of directions, by the way. So the commentaries, I love them to bits, but are not much, won't much help to me on this one. You know, no, this is the same old Jacob. No, this is Jacob who's changed. After all, he's now Israel. But Jacob bows seven times. It'd been a common greeting to bow maybe once, but this is extraordinary. This is what a lowly servant would do to their Lord, what Jacob does. We may miss that. He bowed seven times. And you just think on the ground in a few steps, and then again on the ground seven times, seven times like that. 
This wasn't normal between brothers. So you could make the case, Jacob, is he being properly humble before Esau? Or is he embarrassing himself by groveling before Esau? In chapter 27, verse 29, part of the blessing to Jacob was told him the nations would bow before him. So is this Jacob turning the back on his blessing? You're not to be bowing before Esau. Or is this Jacob's humility that even though the nations will bow before him, here he bows before his brother whom he hurt? I can't fully, and I don't think we will fully resolve the tension. I lean towards a more positive view of Jacob. That even though there is something perhaps a little unseemly, a little too much, a little grovel, yet there is a genuine sense I have wronged my brother and I come in a spirit of contrition. So at least we see courage, you see, because Jacob is not snivelling at the back. He's out front. So that's the sighting. That's what we see. That's the sighting. Secondly, the celebration, verse 4. And before Jacob even reaches him, Esau runs to meet him. Now where else in the Bible do we have this? Luke 15. You can't help but, I couldn't help but think of the prodigal son, of Jesus' story of the prodigal. Now it's brothers here, it's not the father, but just there is the prodigal return home, having squandered his inheritance. Just would you please accept me? Before he even gets there, while a long way off, the father runs to him. It is similar here. Before Jacob can make it to his brother, Esau puts decorum aside and sprints and runs to meet his long lost brother. Esau hasn't come to attack his brother, he came to embrace his brother. If you turn back to Genesis 25, 34, when Esau sold his birthright, we see how angry he was. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his day. Then Esau despised his birthright. That is why, where the conflict started. Moses narrates with five verbs ate, drank, rose, went his way, despised his birthright. Surely it is intentional, it is Moses' intent that when they reunite, he tells the story with five sharp verbs. Not ones of alienation, but ones of reunion. But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and they wept. This is a scene of great celebration. The last time Esau saw Jacob, Jacob was single, fleeing for Rebekah's ancestral home. Now Jacob has two wives, has servant women and hordes of children. And Esau says, well, who are they? Jacob introduces them. I'm not sure how he got around the naming of them. Well, she named him this because she didn't like her and things like that. But anyway, he introduced them, they come, they bow down before him. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I meet? Why are the servants and the animals? Why are you parading your wealth before me? And Jacob said, to find favour in the sight of my Lord. And Esau says in a moment of great magnanimity, I have enough, my brother, keep what you want for yourself. And this, this, this is when it 
can't be, but it sounds very British, isn't it? Jacob then goes, no, 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 please. If I have found favour in your sight, then accept my present from your, my hand. They've been ever so polite, aren't they? They've been really polite at this stage. And then in verse 11, Esau relents and accepts the gift. There's nothing worse, is there, when two different cultures try and give each other gifts. I don't know if you've ever found that. I'm in a cross-cultural marriage as well, and sometimes I say, well, that's too much, or that's not enough. You know what I mean? You have to kind of work your way around these things sometimes. But Esau relents, he accepts the gift. Another one of the difficulties in interpreting this passage is to understand, is this genuine, this back and forth, or is it exaggerated hospitality of the ancient Near Eastern world? If you remember in Genesis 23, that wonderful chapter, one of my favourites so far, when Abraham is trying to buy that cave, or the whole chapter is about the negotiation, where Ephraim the Hittite saying, no, you have it for free, but there's no way he was going to let him have it for free. He was naming his price. What's a few thousand pounds between friends? He's actually naming his price. He's not really have any intention of giving it away, even though he says he will. But that's the way they did business. I couldn't possibly accept money. But if I were, this is how much it would be. Which is, by the way, <laughs> this is my starting point, you know what I mean? So, so it's hard in this passage to know where some of that is taking place and where Esau is genuinely refusing the gift. I think Esau genuinely did not mean to accept the gift because Moses tells us in verse 11, thus he urged him and he took it. But finally Esau has enough and says, stop, all right, I'll take it. Esau doesn't reciprocate the gift, which would, have, which would have been customary, if they were just exchanging pleasantries. So Esau is, by accepting him, is acknowledging that Jacob owes him. So Jacob urges him, he takes it. And I want you to notice in this section of celebration, two key words, verse 10. The first key word is face, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. And we saw that in chapter 32 several times. And as if Jacob is saying, I saw Peniel, which is what he named the place in chapter 32, Peniel. It means I, the face. Peniel is short for Elohim. I saw the face of God, Peniel. Now he says, Peniel, I see the face of my brother, Peniel. I see the face of God, Penny Esau, I see the face of my brother. God did not kill me when I saw his face, and now you have not killed me when you saw my face. So the promise in chapter 32 is a promise of assurance. I've seen the face of the Lord and I am alive, which was meant to reassure Jacob. If you see Peniel and live to talk about it, surely you can see Penny Esau and live. So it is. He sees the face of Esau and he lives. That's the first key word, face. Second key word in verse 11 is blessing. Please accept my blessing. Surely that word would have rung out in Esau's ears. Jacob was given the blessing that should have belonged to the firstborn. And by God's design was meant for Jacob. Nothing will change that. But Jacob now wants to share blessing with Esau. Is it, it is as God promised all those years ago to Abraham. Whoever curses you I will curse. 
But here is Esau. He didn't come to curse Jacob. He comes with kindness. So, so as he blesses Jacob, Jacob will be a blessing to Esau. Take it. Take some of the blessing. Now this section is not really about conflict resolution, but pause for a moment and see a couple of important lessons when we think about reconciliation. Because we do need to reconcile as people. The world lives in a cancel culture which there is no way back. There is no room for repentance anywhere in the world. One strike and you're out. One strike and you're done. And I often wonder when I read the stories, where is, where, where is there room for me if there's no repentance? But as Christians, we should pursue reconciliation. We certainly should, as Christians, pursue reconciliation. And here is one lesson. They didn't try and change the past. Now, it is not that you do not have to acknowledge the past, and sometimes you have to be forgiven for the past, but you cannot change the past. You just cannot. And Esau and Jacob, to their credit, they don't try to re-litigate everything that happened in the past. Esau does not say, you stole my birthright, you stole my blessing. And Jacob said, you wanted to kill me, so I had to run away. And then I got cheated by my uncle, and I had to be gone for 20 years. They don't do that. They don't talk about all the hurt. It's not an absolute rule that you cannot, sometimes you have to talk about the past. But remember, you cannot change it. So even if you have to talk about it and acknowledge it, they do not try and change it. That's the first lesson. The second one is, and this is so key, this is so key, and it got me this week. They focus on what they have instead of what they do not have. Esau was especially magnanimous, which is a great word if I could say it correctly. But it means greatness of spirit and greatness of character. And it means that you don't have to settle every score. Isn't that great? You don't have to settle every score. You can be gracious. You can be forgiving. You don't feel the need to be vindicated on every point. It's okay, by the way, to let bygones be bygones. It's okay to look the other way with certain offences. And Esau is willing to leave 20 years behind. You hear it from Esau. Do I, do I, do, do not I have enough? And then Jacob, do not I have enough? Rather on focusing on what was missing, Esau says, I have a lot. And Jacob, instead of looking at the suffering, he says, do I not have enough? They count, they were counting their blessings. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. They're recognising what God has given them rather than dwelling on what they had lost. It doesn't make reconciliation easy, it really doesn't. It doesn't make it a foregone conclusion. But they did not try to change the past and they focused on what they have rather than what they do not have. Surely that's a good lesson for us. So this is a scene of sighting, a scene of celebration with a sea. And then it's the third scene, verses 12 through 17, this separation. 
And the reconciliation doesn't mean that they all live happily ever after in the same tent. Again, it's hard to know how to fully interpret these paragraphs because it could be this whole section is suffused with exaggerated politeness and hospitality that would have been understood by Esau and Jacob. So we don't, under, we don't know, do they understand the unwritten, unspoken things going on, or do they literally mean every word that was said? Is there a deception by Jacob? Esau says, I'm going to go ahead of you, we can both make our way to Canaan together. That's Esau's first pitch. Is Jacob telling the truth, or is he making an excuse? Is he, I move slowly, I have children, I have flocks, some of them, if we go fast, will die. You know what, brother? You go your own pace, and I'll just meet you back at your home in Seir, which is south, south of the Promised Land. And then Esau says, okay, brother, if you're going to meet me at Seir, I will leave some of my men with you. And Jacob says, no, 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 I don't want to be a burden, don't do that. So then Esau went back to Seir, verse 16, Jacob went north to Succoth. How do we understand Jacob's journey away from Seir to Succoth? Some people say he meant to go, and some, one thing happened after another and he didn't make it. Someone else says he later made it, but we don't have a record of it in Genesis. That's speculative. Others say he never intended to go to Seir, he'd been polite, and Esau understood his politeness. That could be the case, or on the face of it, he never intended to go to Seir, and this is the same old Jacob telling Porkies. He's still a bit nervous about his brother. I'm not sure about us going to Canaan together. I'll see you up there, don't wait up. I'll call you. No, I'll call you and you never do. That kind of thing. But it leads you back to the question. How good or bad is Jacob? You can make a case for both. If you want to make Jacob look bad, you can. You can say, well, he, look, look at the favouritism he shows to his family. He grovels before his brother. He's buying his way out of trouble. He doesn't want the relationship with Esau. He's just telling him porkies and then never sees his brother again. But you could paint Jacob in a better light. He's leading on behalf of his family. He's taking responsibility. He's not groveling, he's showing humility. He's not trying to placate his brother. He's trying to return some of the blessing and acknowledging he had done wrong. Now, Esau may have never really expected Jacob to take him up on his offer anyway. Now, I find somewhere in the middle, which is an easy cop-out, isn't it? But I genuinely do. That Jacob is mixed, and I don't think it is, but I don't think it is all bad. It does seem like he deceived his brother once again about his intentions, a polite lie to Esau. But then we should recall that he prayed in Genesis 32, and Jacob recognises God's hands at work several times in Genesis 33. In fact, this chapter, Esau looks better than Jacob. But there is one aspect where Jacob comes out looking better than Esau. Esau says in verse 8, What do you mean with all this company to find favour? Esau says in verse 9, I have enough. But do you know how, see how Jacob puts it? In verse 5, when Esau says, whose are these? Jacob says, the children whom God has graciously given me. I'm going to change mics. 
And verse 11, please accept the blessing because God has dealt graciously with me. So Esau, for all of his common grace, recognising what he has, I have plenty, but he doesn't recognise God's grace in his life. Jacob, when he's talking about his plenty, understands that this is God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to me. God has dealt graciously with me. We're left with unanswered questions about what was motivating Jacob. But this, that is because the focus is not meant to be on the inner state of each man as they reconcile, but to simply note they were reconciled. Neither was looking for a fight. They were both willing to meet literally in the middle. This doesn't mean that every conflict is 50-50. Sometimes it really is 100-0. Sometimes it is a percentage somewhere with, in between. Your willingness to meet someone in the middle is not an, an admission that the issues are 50-50. But whatever the internal motivations of Jacob and Esau, they are willing to take steps towards each other. Jacob was humble. Esau was kind. Now you can only do all that you can do. If Esau had come warring, it wouldn't have mattered how humble Jacob was. But they come and they meet. And what the Bible wants us to see is that by God's grace, there is some, imperfect though it is, reconciliation. Well, that's the horizontal dimension. And there are some important lessons for us. But I want us to see the theme on the vertical level, which is return. Because where is Jacob at the end of the passage? He is back. He's returned to the promised land. Jacob was so anxious, and it turns out that God was in control, not Jacob's anxiety. Anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. Does that resonate with anyone? I certainly do worst-case scenarios weeks before things happen. And sometimes I cause myself unnecessary anxiety because anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. Now, it doesn't mean to say we're not wise, but sometimes it's a general sort of anxiety. You don't even understand why it's there. A general sort of anxiety of something is not going to go right, or what the future holds is going to be difficult. And we live in anxious times. We do. Well, what's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen in the Ukraine? Will there be a nuclear war? What will happen to our health? Will I be alone? Sometimes the anxiety is specific. You're waiting to hear back from the doctor. You have a hard conversation to have. An illness that you're facing. A difficulty for someone you love. Anxiety can be general, anxiety can be specific. But in both cases, anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. And that is what Jacob is doing. He's wrestling at night, living out the future before it arrives. What's going to happen with Esau? He's got 400 men with him. He has 20 years of pent-up anxiety. Of course God deals with him kindlier than he deserves. That does not mean that every one of your anxieties always turns out and the bad guys are never bad guys. Sometimes they are. 
And sometimes the hard things are hard. But this is what we see. The promise of Lamentations 3. That the mercies of God are new every morning. The mercies of God are new every morning. And when you're anxious, Jesus says you're borrowing tomorrow's troubles for today. Before tomorrow's graces can meet you tomorrow. There's mercy new every morning. So there is grace for tomorrow. There is grace for tomorrow. And that's a promise of God. So Jacob, don't be anxious about that meeting with Esau. Because when you get there, God will have fresh grace for you. Don't be anxious because when you get there, God will have fresh grace for you. So God answered his prayer. And Jacob, it turns out in this instance, was anxious for nothing because Jacob had already done the most important thing he could do. He prayed. The longest recorded prayer in Genesis. He prayed and God answered that prayer. And to fully appreciate what is going on, we need to see the bigger picture. This is the conclusion of Esau Jacob. It started with the despising of the birthright, Genesis 25, but it's spun out in Genesis 27. And by the end of Genesis 27, Jacob has the blessing. Jacob sent from Canaan to go find his uncle in a distant land while his brother wants him dead. That's where things were at the end of chapter 27. There's many ways to tell the story that happens with Jacob over the 20 years. Many ways. But one way to trace the story of 20 years of Jacob is to look at the names given by Jacob to the places on his journey. There are four names that Jacob names places on his journey. First, Genesis 28, 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, Beth-el, the house of God. When he set out to leave and head to Haran, he had that dream, he saw the face of God and he named it Bethel, the house of God. First name place. Second name place, Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw him, then he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Manhaneh, which means two camps. But in this place, it was the meeting of heaven and earth. The camps referring to God coming to meet man. Heaven and earth. Third place meeting, Genesis 32, verse 30. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. He said, for I have seen God face to face. My life has been preserved. Three place names, Bethel, Mananaim, Peniel. And the fourth place name is in verse 17 here. Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of this place is called Succoth. The first three place names are after he encountered God. Bethel, house of God. Menahem, two camps, heaven and earth. Peniel, I've seen the face of God. But which of the four names is unlike any of the other three, the fourth? The first three names are to say, God is here, God is here, God is here. And the fourth name on the face of it seems anticlimactic. It's simply plural for tents. Dwellings, booths. 
So we could say, hang on, Jacob, you were really spiritual for the first three. You were really great. They're pretty good. You're a pretty good namer, Jacob. But you're losing a bit of your energy here. You just called it because you've erected shelters for his animals. He built himself a house and made booths for the livestock. But do you see what the name represents? Even though it seems less spiritual, it means home. He's home. He's simply home. He made it home. Why else do you build a house except your journey is at an end? Why else build shelters unless you made it to your destination? I do not think it too much to see a lesson for us as Christians on our earthly pilgrimage to the heavenly city. Your place is along the way. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. And finally, home. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. Home. And that's how Jacob marked out those 20 years. How telling when he's not at his final destination, when he's not yet home, he names the place, God is with me. God is with me. God is with me on the journey. But when he gets home, he calls it home. And there is one final name in verse 20. Not of a place, but of an altar. He erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Jacob buys a piece of land. The second time in Genesis, Abraham did with the cave of Machpelah. But here he buys land because he's going to stay. And he worships, just like Isaac did. And in, and in Genesis 26, 25, he built an altar, just like Abraham did, Isaac. Recorded four times, Abraham built an altar and worshipped, like father, like son, like grandfather, like grandson. He worships, and he names the altar El, Elohi, Israel. If you go back to Genesis 28, where Jacob leaves and he meets God at Bethel. He makes a vow. If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. He made that vow 20 years previously. Now he makes good on that promise just as God has made good on all of his promises. 20 years ago at Bethel, Jacob said, God, if you do this, if you really are with me, if you give me food, if you give me clothing, and you bring me home. He made the vow at Bethel, he fulfilled at Succoth, and he named the altar El, Elohi Israel, God, the God of Israel. He uses his new name. Jacob set out. Who returned? Israel. But the God of promise had been with him every step of the journey. 20 years later, he returned. This is the life of faith, my friends. This is the life of faith. He doesn't receive everything that he will one day receive. His people haven't inherited the whole promised land. And Hebrews tells us that the promised land is a type of the heavenly city that is to come. And that's the hope for all believers. And the theme throughout the Old Testament, banishment, and return. You get east of Eden and the whole story is how do you return? How do you get back? They get the promised land. They get exiled in Babylon. How do they get back? 
Here we are in God's earth. How do we get back to our heavenly home? Well, here you see a picture of it that is written for our assurance. God has been true to his promise. 20 years later, El Elohi Israel marks out the God of Jacob is now the God of Israel. So I leave you with this. We are on a journey. We're on a journey home. And it's true. And we can track with Jacob's journey. Some of you may identify with, J with Jacob because you're on the run. Not that people can see, but you're on the run from something. Some of you identify with Jacob because he's far from home. Or maybe you're in a season of hard work and conflict. Family joys or family sorrows. Anxiety, panic, reconciliation. These were steps along Jacob's journey home. But this is the good news for Jacob. And my dear friend, it is the good news for you. That if you are a covenant child, if you belong to Jesus Christ, our covenant-keeping Messiah, be assured of this, wherever you are, wherever, wherever you go, God is with you and he will bring you safely home. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.